We're in a series called Rebuild and Rejoice out of the book of Nehemiah. So if you could grab your Bible and turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. What we're doing in this series, if you're new to Kings, we're looking at the connections between the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem after the exile to Babylon in 445 BC. It's a long, long time ago. Connections between that rebuilding and the rebuilding of the church as we come out of COVID. And the story so far, if you are new to the church or new to this book or this series, is the story so far is actually quite simple. That basically the people of God uh, have had their city destroyed, the, the walls are in ruins, and the people of God are vulnerable and weak. And at the first, at the beginning of the book, uh, Nehemiah, who's the main character in the book, Nehemiah cries and prays in chapter one for the, for the project. And chapter two, he prepares for the project and starts calling people to join him. Chapter three, we see them actually doing the work of rebuilding the walls. And in chapter four, we see the people facing opposition from local people who are around who don't want the Israelites to be building it. You have, uh, you know, Sanballat and Tobiah and some local Ammonites and Arabic peoples who are around who, who don't want the work to go on because it's a, a, a Jewish settlement in the midst of what at this point is partly their land. So that's what's going on until now. And until now, that's meant that the book has actually operated with a fairly clear sort of goodies and baddies structure. For the first three chapters, they're all goodies. It's basically the Israelites are the goodies. And then these other local people we met in the last chapter are the baddies. And it looks like, you know, Nehemiah, all the Jews, good. Sanballat, Tobiah, Arabs, Ammonites, Samaritans, bad. That's how it looks like things are set up. But in chapter five, in the chapter we're going to read now, we learn that things are more complicated than that. And they always are. There are enemies within the people of God and not just outside. There are, you know, in America, when they take the oath of allegiance, they pledge to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. As in, there will be people who will threaten us from outside. We know that who they are, but there will be people who threaten from within as well. And there is, in Nehemiah's terms, there is the danger of opposition, chapter 4, from outside. There's also the danger of oppression, chapter 5, from inside. That there are people who are literally trying to stop you from building, but there are also people within who, even though they might be helping you with the building, actually there's injustice coming into the city and oppression and abuse, which is rising up within the people of God. It's not just the enemies, the baddies out there. It's people within who are causing that problem. And in the passage we're going to read, the writer's really clear this is happening from people within. It's Jewish brothers and sisters. It's the powerful people. It's the nobles and the officials within Israel. And the people with power in the community of God are hiking prices, some of them. They're lending at exorbitant rates of interest during a famine. And the result of that is that there are Jewish brothers and sisters who are having to sell some of their children into slavery to pay their debts because the privileged people in the community are oppressing the ones without. The opposition from outside has been largely dealt with in the passage we saw last week. We'll come back to it next week. But the oppression within the city remains. And Nehemiah is furious about it. He is really angry about the injustice. He commits himself to fight the injustice within God's people. And in this chapter, we're going to see how Nehemiah fights injustice. And then we're going to see how we fight injustice. And then we're going to end by looking at how God fights injustice. So how Nehemiah does it, how we do it, and then how God does it. Let's read Nehemiah chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. 
Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and daughters, we are many, so let's get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we're forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it's not in our power to help it, for other men have got our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you're exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we're able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who've been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and couldn't find a word to say. So I said, the thing you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let's abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards and their houses and the percentage of money, grain, wine and oil that you've been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do what they promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labour who doesn't keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I didn't do that because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall and we acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was an ox and six sheep, six choice sheep and birds and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I didn't demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on these people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I've done for these people. This is the word of God. It can be hard for us to appreciate how poor people were until about 250 years ago. Right? If you're a nerd, you might like charts. Right? Here's a chart I just find fascinating. This is a chart of human history, income per person, indexed at kind of equivalent prices. And basically what it shows is that until very, very recently, somewhere in late 1770s, 1800, basically every, the average person in the war, there's a few exceptions, but nearly everybody lives in, on the poverty line until very, very recently because basically the more 
money people would get, the more children they would have and the more people, children would survive. It's called the Malthusian trap, which is quite just an interesting term. But it basically means that the more, yeah, the more income you have, the more kids you have. So basically, average wealth is very, very low for almost all of human history. And I mean, it's obviously right that in our day, we've got to talk about poverty and we've got to talk about the cost of living crisis and we've got to talk about food shortages. And poverty is often relative. But we also know the difference between food shortages, meaning there won't be enough turkey in the shops this Christmas, and, or there won't be enough cucumbers or whatever it is that it is today, and the kind of genuine famine that is facing the people of God in this generation. There is a, there's a difference, and we all know it, and you can see examples of famine tragically on the news sometimes, but this is what they're living in here, living in a genuine, like, I, I and my kids won't have enough to eat unless something happens about this injustice. So it's just kind of important. We've got to recognise poverty for what it is in our world, but understand that the kind of poverty they're dealing with is still different in an important way to that which we face today. And that's the situation the Israelites are living in, and it's happening because of injustice. It's not happening because it hasn't rained. It's happening because powerful people are using the power to crush the poor in various ways in order to feather their own nests. And you see that in verse 3, the people, the cry goes up, we're mortgaging our fields, vineyards and houses to get grain because of the famine. That is, we're having to give some of what God's given to us to richer people so that we might be able to eat. Verse 5, we're forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we can't do anything about it because other people have got our fields and our vineyards. And that kind of situation, which is what the people of Israel are facing, how would you respond if you saw that kind of thing going on? Perhaps another way of asking that question is, how do you respond to injustices of a similar nature in the world today? How do you respond? What is your personal or family or even our church response to injustices like that in the world? State corruption, economic exploitation, abuse of women and girls, racial oppression, abortion, fraud, the effects of climate change. What is the response? What's the appropriate response? Now, those are different issues and they need different responses, often rightly so, but what is our response? And how do, how do you process it? If you're like, when we read injustices in the Bible, you think, this is an outrage. And the question is, okay, so how, do, how would I respond in, to an injustice like that in the day I'm living in, even if the injustice looked different? Well, Nehemiah's response to injustice is a fascinating model. I think it's a great model, I think, for us to consider using. And it basically has three parts to it. And you can, in some ways, the way I read the passage like that broke it into three big paragraphs and, you know, paragraph, verses 1 to 6, really, at the beginning, and then you have a, a big paragraph in the middle, and then the final bit where we hear what he did personally. And his response really has three parts to it. The first part, Nehemiah has a response of concern. Right? He is extremely worried or angry, whatever you might want to call it, about what's happening. Verses 6 to 7, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, which is a way we might say, so I spent some time thinking what I was going to do. But he's like, I was really angry, but I didn't want to just respond out of anger, so I took a moment to reflect, to think through what's the best response here. And so his response begins with concern. It actually begins with an emotional level of engagement with the problem. Right? He's aware, he hears the outcry, but he doesn't just do it calm, you know, like a sort of cool, calm and collected. He's emotionally engaging with the problem, saying, this is not right. I was very angry. And something of that is the way he begins in his response. 
and weighing up what to do next. So he begins with concern. Then he moves from concern to confrontation. He has it out with these guys. Verses 7 to 11, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. They were silent and couldn't find a word to say, so I said, the thing you're doing is not good. Now you imagine that's, you know, the thing you are doing is not good. Probably not as wooden as that. It's like, what are you doing? Let's abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them. That's the poor. You guys with money, return to them this very day, the fields, vineyards, olive orchards and houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine and oil you've been exacting from them. Now remember, in those days, this, we, we think about interest in the context of inflation. That's not, that's not how things work then. They don't have inflation in the same way. So it's not as such talking about, you know, I'm lending a bank lending money at 2% for a mortgage or whatever. That's not really what's happening here. It's more like, I have got money, you don't, and in order for you to eat... I'm going to charge you more than the market rate, really, to, because I can, because then I will be able to get your land and you will have to live effectively as a slave in debt, bonded labour to me. And that's what these people are doing. And Nehemiah confronts, he says, what are you doing? This is totally unacceptable. Now, at that point, the rich nobles, they agree. They, they accept that Nehemiah is right and they say, okay, fine. We will agree to do what you say. But that's not enough for Nehemiah. Because he knows that people can weasel out of it. So the confrontation continues. And he says, I know you make commitments. I know how these things work. So I got the priests alongside. I had a public gathering with them. I said in front of everybody, this is not okay. And they went, oh, all right, yeah, yeah, you're right. And then I said, right, priests, come here. We're going to make you swear never to do this before God. And I called the priests and made them swear, verse 12. And then, as if that's not enough, he does this kind of random curse thing that we don't really do in our day. I grabbed the, f I've never done this to anybody. When someone says, oh, yes, what I'll do, I, I will, you know, pay you this on your mortgage or whatever. I've never got hold of the folds of my garments and shaken them at them. But that's what he does. He says, right, so may God shake you out of the land and your possessions if you break this promise you've made today. This is a long and direct confrontation, right? Nehemiah is concerned at an emotional level. He's angry. But then he moves from concern to confrontation. He has it out with them, and then he makes them make commitments and holds them to them. And then thirdly, in the final section, Nehemiah pays the cost of this confrontation with injustice. Right? You see, he makes a lot of references to this in the final paragraph as we read it. Verse 14, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. That is, I was, I was in charge, so I'm kind of, was entitled at least by common practice to take a contribution for the food allowance so that all of the bigwigs I was entertaining and providing work for the workmen, I could pay for them out of expenses, basically. That's what we'd call it. But he said, I didn't want to do that because these people were starving. Verse 16, we acquired no land. A lot of people in Nehemiah's position, position of power, would say, it's all right, we'll, we'll find a way of making sure that we end up richer after this responsibility than we were at the start. Often happens, doesn't it? And the, people say, it's all right, we'll, we'll fight injustice. We'll just keep a little surcharge for our own expenses. And they often end up suspiciously getting much wealthier through handling the injustice. There's a lot of states where that happens, formalised corruption. But it can happen in NGOs. It can even happen in churches. He says in verse, uh, verses 17 to 18, there were at my table 150 men. That's a lot of people to feed. 
What was prepared at my expense for each day was an ox, six sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I didn't demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on these people. So I'm effectively funding the works, or at least the entertainment component of the works, the feeding of the men who are doing it and the local nobles and so on, I need to keep on side. But I paid for all of that because I didn't want to tax the people who don't have any money. In other words, Nehemiah was personally absorbing the cost of the confrontation with injustice. So he has an emotional response, that one of concern. He then has a, a sort of verbal response where he says, you must not do this. What are you playing at? And then he effectively has an active response where he himself puts his money where his mouth is. He says, I paid for it in the end. He says, I, I, I had to fund it because I, I thought, I can't ask these people for more taxes to offset all these costs. So I think I'll just pay for them out of what I've got. And I think if he hadn't done that, he might not be able to have the integrity to say, you shouldn't do it. So he's really saying, I don't want anyone to think I'm, doing, I'm in this for the money, and I didn't want the people to be harmed, so I paid it myself. So he has a threefold response, moving from concern to confrontation to cost. And I think Nehemiah's model, if you like, I know he's just responding to a problem, but I think the way he does it is a very good model for those of us who are responding to, and all of us really, fighting injustices today. Because his response goes from confrontation, sorry, concern, confrontation, cost, which basically incorporates what you feel, what you say, and what you do. And that sort of triple header, the, the way it works, all, of, all parts of your being involved in responding to this injustice is a very good model for us. The ancient Greeks used to talk about persuasion in the same way. When they were teaching people how to make speeches that were persuasive, they'd say, oh, you, what you've got to do, you've got to engage pathos, logos, ethos. That is, you've got to engage people's feelings, you've got to engage people's minds through words, and you've got to engage people's actions through the, the ethos. Now we want, so pathos as in, you know, feelings like empathy or sympathy or pathetic. Right, logos, like logic, words, and then ethos, as our word ethics, the way we act. And advertisers still use this. So this little diagram on the screen is something I found online that advertisers still use it, saying when we're trying to engage people in selling a product, we try and do these things. And that's actually, that's often a very good model for thinking, how do I engage where I want to get my whole being involved? Am I saying, feeling, and doing things that are consistent with each other? And Nehemiah does. He starts by feeling deeply. I was very angry. And then he says something very courageous. This is not good. You must stop doing it. And then he does something sacrificially. So I didn't demand the food allowance. So it moves from feeling to speaking to doing. So let me ask you this. Which of those three do you find the hardest? As a person, like probably all of us will find one or two of them easier than the other or others. Our personalities are wired that way. Some of us might be very good at this bit, but then we go, oh, I really struggle with that. Now, I'll be honest, the one I find hardest is concern, is actually the feeling. Like, another way of asking the question, which do you find the hardest? Are you more likely to be apathetic, that is not to feel it enough, or illogical, that is not to speak it enough, or unethical, that is not to do it? Which of those three? Apathy, illogic, unethical. Now, for me, my risk would be of lack of concern. I don't mind confrontation. I find that fairly easy. And I'm okay at giving up time or money for things that I really care about. 
But my danger is that I don't feel concerned enough in the first place. That's, often, that's my challenge. That there might be an injustice out there and I just either haven't really noticed it or I haven't em emotionally slowed down enough to feel the force of what's happening and to get myself in a place where I'm like, this is not okay, something must be done. That's, been, that's where I'm weakest, I think. I need more anger and injustice. In fact, just a few days ago, my wife Rachel, she works for an anti-poverty charity, and she actually challenged me on this in a very lovely way, but she's like, I, I think we need, you, Andrew, need to fuel your own, the need in your soul to, to fight for justice and to pursue mercy. I think you need to do things that are, you know, both in what you read and in the stories you consider and the people you speak to and the things you pray for. And uh, so just earlier today, I was just taking a, a prayer email from a charity that we, we get an email from them every week, the charity we support that fights sex trafficking. And I, just praying through it and thinking, God, this is so evil. Because I need to fuel that in myself, that concern. Otherwise, I become apathetic and live in a bubble. So I find concern the hardest one. Others of us might find it, oh, no, actually, I'm full of concern. My danger is confrontation. That's what I find difficult. So might, our version of Nehemiah 5 might say, I was very angry, but I also didn't want to seem intense or difficult, so I took counsel with myself and kept quiet about it. Because we might find that's the area where we're weaker. We say, no, I, I do, I feel it strongly, but I'm not great at speaking about it or challenging it when I see it. Because confronting powerful people, like Nehemiah does here, takes a lot of courage. They might be more articulate than you, more influential, richer. They probably are. Your job might depend on them thinking well of you, which makes it really difficult. You might need help from other people in bringing confrontation for good reasons. Now, if that's true, by the way, relax. So did Nehemiah. Right? Nehemiah brings a confrontation, and then immediately, verse 7 says, I called a great assembly against them and called, had it out with them in front of others so that other people could witness the fact that what they'd done was wrong. So if you're someone who goes, do you know what? My circumstances make it very hard for me to confront this injustice... Yeah, you may well need, and you, I'm sure you do, draw other people in in order to be able to make that challenge and like even things out of it. And then others, again, of us might struggle with the cost. We say, no, I do. I feel it strongly, and I do confront it when I see it. But the challenge for me is paying the price that sometimes comes with it. Now, we might be outraged at injustice and very happy to confront it, but a bit more skittish when it comes to our own personal contribution, like losing money or losing time or losing face or downsizing our home or adopting a child or whatever it may be that ends up implicating me in fighting that injustice. And social media makes that much more tempting because you can posture, you can make yourself look more engaged with injustice than you are. And we can see examples in the news all the time, like that guy the other week who sort of gets caught out because he's blockading the Blackwall Tunnel and all the motorways, but then it turns out he hasn't insulated his own home. And obviously he says, has to say and admit on the news, yeah, I'm a hypocrite. I mean, some of us would find our own versions of that where we'd say, I'll engage with it as long as it doesn't cost me, but I quite enjoy the, the concern and the confrontation and get really riled up, but actually I don't, in the end, do what Nehemiah did and put my money where my mouth is. Fighting injustice always comes at a cost. It's a cost that many of us pay every day in our ordinary lives and it's okay to celebrate it when you do because that's what Nehemiah does and he concludes this chapter. Remember me, O oh God, for all the good I've done. Lord, please bless me. All this, all this stuff I've done has been hard. Remember it, Lord. 
And so I think there's that, that Nehemiah's response is a really good model for us. Like, how do you engage with the concern? How do you engage con- in confrontation? And how do you engage with the cost that it comes to you personally? But we've got to notice, not only is this what Nehemiah does, and not only is this what we should do, but notice the fundamental motivation that makes Nehemiah's fight against injustice possible. Because it isn't ultimately, I'm a really good guy, or these people have been awfully hard done by. Did you notice when we read the text? Nehemiah's motivation runs deeper than that. Verse 9, he says, The thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of God? Verse 15, Even their servants lorded over the people, but I didn't do so because of the fear of God. Nehemiah's motive isn't just, I'm very compassionate, or these people have suffered, although both are true. Ultimately, his motive is bigger and richer than that. It's, I fear God. And because I fear God, I can't have this in my own life and I can't have it in this community. He wants us to be clear that his reason for opposing injustice is not ultimately driven by his righteousness or even humanitarian concern, as good as those things are, but by the fear of God who watches over all people and will hold them all to account. And in the end, our great motive for contending against injustice is And our great example is not ultimately Nehemiah or any other good person. Greta Thunberg, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, William Wilberforce, whoever it might be. It's ultimately our example is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's ultimately looking to somebody. He's not only our example, he's also the guarantee that the fight against injustice will ultimately win. You see, if you don't know that, you find yourself struggling in the here and now against injustices, thinking, I'm just not sure that we will overcome. But we root our fight against injustice in one who has certainly already overcome and will come back and make all injustice flee away. And it's because of his fight against injustice that we find the power and the wherewithal and the resources to do it ourselves. So look at how Jesus fights injustice. He does just what Nehemiah does. He moves from concern, confrontation, cost. He gets angry at the ravages of evil and he steps in to fix it. He is emotionally invested in the Lord Jesus Christ, emotionally invested in the fight against evil. He steps in to fix it. He then confronts boldly and at the cost of his life the powers and principalities, the world, the flesh, the devil, the rulers and authorities, Caesar, Pharisees, scribes, whoever they are. He says, this is not good. You must not live like this. And then he pays an unimaginably high cost to show just how much his money is where his mouth is. He suffers for the sins of the world. He's not just outraged by it. He doesn't even just confront it. He pays the price to resolve it forever. In the Lord Jesus, pathos, logos, and ethos all unite. Right? His feelings are completely consistent with his words, which are completely consistent with his actions and all the way around. There is no concern that he won't confront. There's no confrontation that he's not prepared to pay the price for. All of those things come together in him in perfect harmony. And in the cross of Christ, we see the depth of God's concern against injustice collide with his how angry, how prepared he is to confront it and the price he's prepared to destroy it. And it is only in that way, as those three things come together, that evil is ultimately defeated. The justice of this world rests on his shoulders and not on yours, ultimately. It's good for us to, we are participating like younger siblings with our older brother who has gone and spearheaded the fight. We get to participate, but ultimately we know that it's on him, not on us, to win this fight. And because it's on him, not on us, we can fight injustice with confidence, knowing 
that the day is coming when justice will roll down like rivers and righteousness like a mighty stream. We sing that song in this church often, don't we? I will build my life upon your love. And we sing this line, which has really helped me. Lord, show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me. I want to I see your word revealed, logos, if you like. I want to be filled with your feeling. I want to fill your, with your heart, the emotion. And then I want you to lead me to places where I need to serve others because of who you are, with action. And as those three things come together, in Jesus, we can then take them for ourselves and say, Lord, I want to fight injustice in the same way, not just as Nehemiah did, but as you did. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus as this perfect example of how to contend against the injustices of the world. I pray those of us among us who need courage, you would give courage. To those of us who need concern, you'd add concern. You'd fill us with your heart. To those of us who need to pay the cost, Lord, you'd add consistency and integrity. For those who need all of them, you'd strengthen us in all these areas. And we pray that we as a church and as individuals and families would be able to confront the powers of darkness in this world through the love of your son, Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.